It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. Uh, it's Tuesday, so I'm excited to bring in two more fantastic guests to talk about talent and culture and everything in between uh, and you know, anything we're thinking about that might help us in our workplaces uh, with our own development and certainly inside of our companies. So, you know, Talent Talk is really uh, centered around this idea um, that really came to me as I have met so many uh, fascinating and inspiring leaders at different groups and events and through LinkedIn and through conferences. And, um, and, and so I wanted to bring them in and, hey, let's have a great conversation and let's allow everyone else who wants to to, to listen to that conversation and even be a part of that conversation um, so it's not just me learning all these cool things from all these cool people. Um, and so many of the stories uh, over the years that we have uncovered on this show have ended up in my first book, The Power of Company Culture. Uh, you can find that on Amazon or Bowl or wherever you buy books uh, online. You can certainly get a copy. Um, as I said, Talent Talk is live every just about every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We record it live here most most times in uh, Orange County, California, uh, as long as I'm not on the road. And, you know, a lot of you get it after the fact. You get it on iTunes or if on our radio or Stitcher or wherever you go for your podcast. There we are. And uh, we'd love to have you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and you can catch all your favorites and look into the past shows to see if there's anybody who you really want to listen to. We've had some big names on there that uh, you might be interested in. Uh, one of the ways that we keep the conversation going is my social media guru, Sarah. Um, go, she, she takes all of sort of the best things she sees hearing as the show is happening live and place them on Twitter. So if you follow at peopleg 2 and if you follow that hashtag talent talk, all one word, um, you can see those posts kind of coming up as the show goes along. And if you want to comment, if you want to re like it or repost or whatever it may be, uh, argue with us, uh, that's a great time to do it. And if you're getting the show after the fact, if it's not, you're not listening live, that's okay. Those All those tweets are still there. You can go find them. Um, usually if you find that, you know, uh, at PeopleG2 or one of the guest uh, handles, it's a good place to find it and keep that conversation going. We've had that quite a bit lately where we've been able to to sort of have conversations with our listeners on, on the different topics and uh, keep it going. So it's really fantastic. All right. So uh, speaking, I've been sort of teasing you about guests and uh, let's get to, to uh, today's guests. Uh, my first guest will be uh, Stephen Sisler, president of Behavioral Research Group. And then we're going to bring in uh, Paul Gibbons all the way in from Ireland. He's a senior growth specialist of Global Shares. So we'll bring him in on the second half of the show. Um, and we have to get uh, him ready to go. But let's go ahead and bring in uh, Stephen. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Chris. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, about your background in leadership, and, you know, of course, tell us what you're doing over there at uh, Behavioral Resource Group. Okay, so uh, the Behavioral Resource Group, I started it about 16 years ago. Um, and I'm a behavioral profiler and a personality expert. So what we do is we create tools, which are, are behavioral resources, um, which measure emotions, behavior, motivation. And we also have uh, taken the algorithm for the Hartman value profile, and we've created our own tool with that um, in an effort to locate the way people think, how they make judgments, um, which emotions they rely on for making decisions in the world. Uh, and when we gather all of this data, it helps us understand specifically how people are likely going to do things. Um, so when they're working with certain people, they're doing certain jobs, we can pretty much tell how that's likely going to pan out for them. So companies hire us in an effort to make sure they get all the right people in the right places. And they also hire us in an effort to know why is this particular portion of the organization experiencing this kind of turnover or, you know, whatever the case may be. But because we know human beings so well based upon the measurements we gather, um, then we can tell them likely how something's going to happen. So I've been reading people since I was a child um, and just have been pretty good at it. So uh, I entered into this space, like I said, 16 years ago, and I had a business before that for 18 years, and within seven months, this one eclipsed what that one did in all of 18 years as far as income. Um, and since then, we've had clients in over 18 countries. Uh, so it really took off, um, and we have have clients that stick with us 10 years or more um, simply because, you know, we understand all the people and how they tick. And then as they bring people into that culture, we're, we're helping them make sure they stay with the same types of brain types for that culture. And that's pretty much what we do. So it sounds like you're sort of really, you know, enhancing or shining a bigger light on the behavioral component, uh, especially as companies are recruiting or thinking about who they want inside their organization. So maybe you can kind of talk about what, what does that really mean to you, that behavioral recruitment term? Well, behavioral recruitment, we do everything all the way down to how an ad is written um, because as you're soliciting to get people in, um, you know, people think, uh, that people are looking for a great place to work, but they're not. They're looking for great people to work with. Um, and so once we understand who is in the organization and how they're wired, then we solicit the people by the way we word the ads. So if we're looking for a certain person, a certain people type, then we'll word it that way so that those who are that type will see that ad and say, oh, my gosh, that's me, you know, and they'll respond. And we did this with a company in Australia. They were getting about 100 uh, resumes a week. And when we changed the ad for them, it dropped it down to about 13. Um, and so the people they were getting were more likely to fit the role than everybody else who was just applying because mm -hmm. they simply needed a job. Um, so that's part of behavioral recruitment. And the other thing is making sure – it's the right type of thinking person that they need. Um, it's not, people don't get in trouble because of what they're doing. Trouble comes because of the way they do it. And we're going to know the way people will do things. And if you need a certain type person, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult 
to hire the right person the first time. Uh, and that's what we endeavor to help people do. And we pretty much bat a thousand doing that. We've been doing it for all these years. We've never had any problems with it. Um, but it's a process that they have to be willing to go through up front. It's like marriage. You spend the right amount of time and energy in the front of the marriage. You're not working on all of it on the other end of the, on the other side of it. Um, you know, it tends to be a little bit more blissful. Uh, but when you're not paying attention up front, that can bite you in, in the other side. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and if organizations can take the right approach to it, it can really make a huge difference. Uh, you, you know, and so what are you seeing? Uh, obviously, what you're offering and the tools and the things that you're offering your clients are a part of this, but maybe even more broadly, what are you seeing organizations or what are you thinking organizations really need to do to ensure that they are hiring the right people? Um, clearly, the behavioral part of it is important, but I guess more broadly, what are some of the things you're seeing that, you know, in 2019 that companies need to be thinking about? Well, I think, you know, we encourage people to investigate people they're looking to hire on social media. Um, we've had some pretty unscrupulous uh, situations when they checked uh, YouTube and different things like this, and they're like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> we're about to bring this person in. <laughs> right. And uh, so there, there's that. Um you know, we recommend, you know, heavy reference checking. And I, when people delegate, if somebody delegates to me the process of recruiting, they're not doing it themselves, they farm it to me, then if I'm hiring a male, I'll speak to their wife or their girlfriend, or if it's a female, their boyfriend or their husband. Um, like, I talk to close family members. And what people don't realize is they're more likely to tell you the truth, actually, than friends. Um, and so uh, there's different things we do that ensure that we're not leaving any stones unturned. And we recommend everything from sex offense checks to credit checks and these types of things. Um, but for the most part, uh, if the companies aren't doing that, we'll recommend it. Um, and if they are doing that, then we just come in with the behavioral, motivational, and axiological pieces, which are basically really drilling down into how this person thinks how they make judgments, what their empathy is like. Um, are they a perfectionist? Are they results-oriented? You know, all these different types of things. Um, and so uh, uh, that becomes extremely important. And we had a company that really worked hard with us to make sure they got the right people. Um, they moved people around because they realized some of these things that they were doing weren't working well for them. But they did it anyway because... You know, they were trying to be faithful in their work, but once they moved them um, or changed them, things went a lot better. And within 18 months, they were up 40%. And it was just from rearranging, dismissing, or getting the right people in the right seats the first time. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff we do, and it, it, it's really, really beneficial. Um, and we have a full 90-minute debrief on an individual that they're bringing in. Um, and that, or that they plan on bringing in, in an effort to show them exactly how this person thinks. Um, and when you get a good alignment with what they're doing, who they're doing it with, and who they're doing it for, and the way they do it, then it's a marriage made in heaven. All right. 
I know one of the areas of expertise that you have is in helping leaders and companies really center on that, uh, the personal part, right, rather than the professional maybe management uh, techniques, maybe the, what the stuff on the resume, I guess. Um, you know, are, do you find that leaders are t- tend to be open to this, uh, or is it something that is maybe a little bit slower in the beginning and they sort of accept it over time as a sort of maybe it's been demonstrated to them or you, they can see that it's a valuable leadership skill? Yeah, I think it's slower, and then over time they understand it, uh, especially since we make predictions and they come true. Um, uh, but the more personal people are with individuals, uh, the clearer the communication. Uh, this sounds very simple, but, in, in, but it's profound. Sixty years of data proves that when people think you like them, they work hard for you. Um, if they don't think that, they don't. So some people work for the weekend, some people work for their employer. Um, so when we encourage being more personal than professional, that means sitting down with people and asking them if everything's okay, is everything going on okay at home, you know, how is your weekend, what's going on? Uh, because people come to work with real lives and they try to put them on hold so they can do their job, but your real life affects that work life tremendously. And when people are engaged with people as whole people, they work harder. Um, they feel understood. Uh, people typically don't quit work. They tend to quit a boss or a manager, and it's usually because they feel unappreciated or misunderstood. And so what we try to do is help them be more personal in their management relationships. A lot of managers think if I'm personal, then that makes me look weak and I start losing control. But the, the opposite is what actually happens. Um, so we, we try to push that, and most of our clients get that and, um, you know, and work that way. Some, you know, they just don't believe that. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I've seen, and we've had to kind of make this shift inside our, our organization, is that, you know, it's really easy to say, here's these, here's these two or three great employees that are in this particular department, and they have the right personality, they have the right motivation, they have the right approach to things from a behavioral standpoint. And so I would like to go and get three more just like them. I want to take their assessments, I want to, you know, crack their code, and then go back and, you know, do it for, um, uh, you, you know, again, let's go find three more just like them and put them on the same team and I can have even more success uh, and all of that. And, and and so in theory, that sounds good, right? If you can, if you have three great people, why not go through, find three more that have, kind of have that same, uh, I guess, uh, behavioral um, footprint. But what we found was that we actually needed to have some sort of diversity of thought, right? We needed to have some people that did, did think differently. Maybe they could still be compatible. That was important with the group. But to bring in three more clones, just like the other three we had, sort of really cut down on innovation. It really cut down on on people, you know, speaking up and, and saying if they disagreed because they were suddenly now pushed even harder into things like group thought um, and, and things like that. So I'm kind of getting, you're curious on what your thought process is on, you know, what's the balance there? Do you, do you agree or disagree with that? And, and how do you sort of, you know, I guess avoid some of those issues? Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying there. Uh, there is no clones. I mean, you can get similar profiles. You could even get two different people. And let's say you have the exact same profile, like just for some arbitrary reason. Uh, with the Hartman value profile, there's over six quadrillion 
uh, different measurements you could get. So you never get the same one. Um, but if you did, they would still be different because, you know, part of being human is uh, in your DNA. And so we have discovered, and this has been discovered through brain science and things like this, that 40 to 47% of who you are is in your genes. Um, I mean, nowadays they can scan your brain and tell you which political party you're affiliated with and be right over 70% of the time. Um, so a lot of who we are is in the way we think. Um, so you could be, uh, you know, a passive, uh, resistive personality type that's a very strong thinker, um, and you could hire one just like that, but they're not going to do things the exact same way. So part of what we do is we just find out what is it you need, what, what are you looking for, and, you know, we try to benchmark that for them. And we, we're pretty successful in doing that. And, again, we don't do things where we're just running numbers. I know a lot of times you could spit out, people spit out a report, and the number is a 76 at the bottom, and they look at that number and say, this person is going to fit this role by 70% chance it's going to work out or whatever that is. Um, that's just really not a good way to do this. Um, we converse with people. We talk with them. Uh, we recommend they go to dinner with them. Um, have them on a neutral ground and, and, and talk with them that way. Uh, but diversity, yes. Um, uh, people are all different. No matter what you try to do, you're going to have diverse people. Um, but if you need several driving styles because the goal is getting things done in this particular department, then hiring a person who's extremely passive is likely not going to work for you. So although you may have multiple drivers in the role, they are not all the same. And we'll know what the differences are because we're measuring it. Yeah, and and you know, I guess it gets into that sort of um, different approach if you're going to try to have people that are all, uh, you know, we can sort of put them. Maybe their personalities are going to be remarkably. Um, you kind of get what six million quadruple whatever it was. <laughs> There's so many different variations inside that one area, but you know, we can't have people that tend to be. Um, you know, fairly technical or fairly, um, you know, that kind of have a commonality about them. And I guess if we, what we've seen, and this is sort of not only true in, inside of that part of it, but if you look at things like the um, success of Agile and Scrum, I mean, sort of bringing in different people who are different parts of the organization and different thought processes and being able to have that sort of, I guess, behavioral diversity can sometimes really help teams meet their goals. Uh, I'm wondering if that, you know, you're seeing or you have some particular advice on, hey, you get these people in, they, if they're using your process or whatever they're doing it, um, and they have the right people sitting in the right seats on the right bus, how do then leaders keep them motivated, especially through, you know, maybe some specific direction through your work on, on through behavioral um, type things? Well, the, I have found the best way to motivate people uh, is self-motivation. Like, people need to motivate themselves. It's difficult if a leader, his job is motivating people. It should be managing them, not motivating them. Um, so you want to try to find people that are self-motivated. Um, and we can find those people. Um, but uh, motivation really happens when there's a synergy between what they're doing and the environment that they're doing it in. Uh, motivation happens when uh, I feel like I'm tapping into my best self and my real self, 
when I'm working. In other words, a lot of times we'll, people will hire somebody and then they want them to do something that doesn't really connect with the way they do things or the way they think. And so what they have to do is make an emotional shift in the workplace and try to maintain it all day. We try to get individuals in spots where the way they are naturally is really what they need to be doing all day so that they just go to work, they be themselves, and it works versus going to work and trying to become Superman uh, and then trying to hold that, you know, all day long. It's exhausting. Um, so this is why when people um, think a certain way, they view the world a certain way, they view people a certain way, um, and those ways that they do those things jive with what they're doing, then it becomes more effortless. And motivation really comes when, here's a good example. Let's say I like to be in charge of my own space. If I like to be in control of my own space, that means I'm an owner. It means I want authority that's equal to or greater than my responsibility. But let's say I don't get any authority. I'm not allowed to make decisions within my own department and with my own sphere of influence. Then I'm going to experience what's known as brain tension. And so I'm not going to like it. So I would be motivated if I had something to call my own and I was able to call the shots concerning it. So the best thing for a person who's an owner-type thinker is to put them in a position where they have some authority. Any other position will be demotivational for them, no matter what. So it's about aligning the way they are with what they do. Uh, and when you do that, motivation happens. It's not something we have to crack the whip in the chair to get the line to do a trick. That's not what we do. We get people in positions where they're naturally being themselves, and they like it. And then that creates what's known as self-motivation. Right. And, and you know, I think there's such a push. If we can give people autonomy, we can give them what, what it is inside of that you know, sphere that makes them happy, that keeps them motivated, that connects to their behavior. And, 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 you know, giving someone autonomy inside of it doesn't mean they can do whatever they want, but giving them the autonomy inside of that area, which they should be able to control and manage and, and, mm -hmm. and live inside of it, costs us nothing, right? As business owners, it costs us That's nothing right. to give them that. Uh, and yet what mm -hmm. we get in return is uh, incredible, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and people spend gazillions of dollars on these programs and things and that don't get them anything like giving someone the autonomy yeah. to control their space, to control their environment, to, to do the job right. that they've been given yeah. to do, right? Yeah, when people have freedom and autonomy, for a lot of people, it's better than money. <laughs> right. You know, being able to be me and enjoy me being myself and not try to be somebody else when I'm working is so liberating and it's so motivating. Um, there's nothing like being self-motivated, and that only happens when you can be yourself. Um, and, uh, and this is what we teach when we travel, and, and I put on seminars about being your best self and what that looks like. Like, I don't want people to change who they are. Uh, you should probably change where you're doing it. Um, if I, and one of my favorite sayings is, if you're a tomato, you're better off in a salad. If you're a hammer, you're better off in a toolbox. But at work, we got hammers and people's salads. Right, right. And and, and we and we're not doing anything about it. And I think that also sort of really contributes to people not 
meeting their own goals professionally, right? Uh, they are the hammer, and they're trying to go in and, and be in a salad, right? They're, and yeah. whether it's they're choosing to be in that environment or someone has hired them to mm-hmm. be in that environment. But maybe why else are, are people sort of missing the mark on what they're trying to achieve professionally? Uh, well, I think some people, um, you know, they, 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 okay, this is one of the things we measure. It's called self-direction. And so if I don't have much clarity on my future, in other words, I have poor clarity when it comes to my visions, my goals, and my future expectations, but yet I uh, am 100% positively driven to arrive at a destination, even though I'm not quite sure where it is, then I can take a job and think it's one thing, and six months in I find out it's something else because I had poor clarity. I wasn't thinking about those different aspects of it. What I was focused on is leaving where I'm at. And a lot of times when we're measuring people, we can see within their behavioral profile that all they're doing is leaving where they are. So it's not about where I'm going, it's what I'm leaving. So all the energy is in leaving the first job, not entering the second one. And then when they get in that second one, more often than not, five to six months in, they realize they don't like it because what they were really doing was escaping, not entering. They were leaving, not entering. And so we look for people who have very clear clarity on where they're going and what they want and what their vision and their goals are for the future. Because if they're looking at this organization with that kind of a mindset, they're actually thinking, oh, my gosh, this job is for me. This place is for me. And when you hire those kinds of people, they last a long time. Right. And isn't that what we want? We want our best people to stick around and, and to do a great job for us. And uh, ultimately, yeah. we end up using, I think, if we're not applying that right strategy, we are losing our best people and keeping our uh, B and C players around for far too long. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes we don't keep good people because we don't want to pay for them, but somebody else will. Um, and right. so I ask people all the time, I'll ask a client, so, okay. Uh, I said to one client, I said, you know, how's so-and-so doing? Oh, they're really great. They're really great. But, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're talking about leaving us. And so I don't know if we'll ever find another person like that. I said, well, why are they leaving? Well, they need to make more money. I said, well, what is the cost of trying to find somebody like this girl? Uh, they didn't expect that question. I said, would a $4 raise or a $3 raise be more than enough to keep a high-quality person that you in your own mind just told me you don't think you'll ever find again? I mean, what are you thinking? And then yeah. they snap out of it. Um, and then they'll make that offer and keep them. Um, I had an individual uh, that we, they were a current employee. We looked at the profile, and I knew by looking at that profile that this person was dissatisfied and was likely basically going to school on this person, so learning all they could learn so they could go do what they're doing there somewhere else or for themselves. So I met with the owner, and I told him about it, and he didn't really believe me. I said, well, do me a favor and just have a chat with this guy? And he said, sure, because he was running his whole operation. When he talked with him, he found out that he was dissatisfied and he was planning on leaving, and he wasn't even going to give him enough notice. And so what he did was he offered him uh, some kind of a partnership in another endeavor that he was doing within the company, and the guy stayed, and I believe the guy's still there, and that was like eight years ago. And wow. later on, that guy told me it would have cost him over a million dollars losing this guy. That's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing how some of those things can happen, and it's really kind of 
sheds light on the importance of understanding your people. So how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more, they want to maybe work with Behavioral Resource Group? What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, uh, basically go to the Behavioral Resource Group, and there's ways to connect with us there. There's a phone number, there's a form you can fill out to ask us questions, um, things like that. Or just type in Stephen Sisler in the Google, and there's, there's probably six pages there that'll come up uh, that'll be able to point you in some direction, or at least hear me online, you know, doing podcasts or as a guest on a podcast or something like that, where I share a lot of stories um, about, you know, people and things that we've encountered over the many years that we've been in business. Uh, but just the behavioralresourcegroup.com without the the. It's just behavioralresourcegroup.com. Fantastic. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. And uh, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break, and we'll bring in my second guest, Paul Gibbons. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Welcome back to Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or iHeartRadio or to go to talenttalkradio.com. You can also subscribe there to make sure you never miss a show. Uh, wherever you find your podcast, you can find us there. Uh, and don't forget to follow our live tweets uh, at PeopleG2 or follow that hashtag Talent Talk. Uh, you can see all the best one-liners and interact with, with the guests uh, on Twitter today. So my next guest is Paul Gibbons coming all the way from Ireland, uh, Senior Growth Specialist at Global Shares. Um, and uh, so, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, I am glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Can I make two corrections? Absolutely, because, you know, it wouldn't be a show if I didn't uh, mess something up. So let's, let's, let's go for it. So uh, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. Oh, all right. Well... Not Ireland, fantastic. And I, and I have four four Irish uh, four Irish grandparents, so you're not a million miles away. All right, all right. Well, you know, it's uh, I, it, when you first started talking, I thought, well, maybe he moved to Ireland, so it ah, makes a lot of sense. Well, so I, we can conduct this in an Irish accent if you like. <laughs> I'd be very happy to do so, especially if I had a if I had a point. But anyway, no. Right. Uh, and the other fantastic. small and the other small thing is, I'm the author of a couple of books on change management and leadership, uh, which I think. 
Yeah, which I think we're going to get to, right? And so maybe you can, yeah, of course, our producer Paul is now trying to show us Irish whiskey uh, through the monitor, which none of our audience can see, but the rest of us can. So, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so tell me about, the, let's start with the books. So what are the books called and, uh, and what, what, what's the focus of them? Well, uh, I wrote one uh, in 2015 that I just republished in 2019 called The Science of Organizational Change, based on the idea that organizational change is full of myths and BS and, you know, strategies that don't really work, particularly in today's world uh, with complexity and pace of change. And then I wrote one called Impact, which is on the fourth industrial revolution, the future of work. Uh, with change in leadership as a backdrop. So how do you have to adapt change in leadership for the fourth industrial revolution? Well, fantastic. So I know, um, how did you get into this? Let's start with that. You know, who are you and how the heck did you get into into all of this before we start talking about your work and the, and the things that I think are important for our listeners will be interested to hear about. But, you know, how do you go from uh, a, a small, small child to where you are today? Maybe not the whole history, but, you know, how'd you get here in general? Uh, I went to Wisconsin, even though I'm a, I'm a Brit. And I went to Wisconsin and left Wisconsin as a math guy and went to work on Wall Street as a math guy, a derivatives trader and, uh, uh, you know, one of those guys. So I was very young, made a lot of money, wasn't very happy, which taught me something about the value of purpose at work and not a paycheck. I mean, I made a million dollars a year when I was in my early 20s. That was a lot of money when I was in my early 20s as well. So it's not considered a lot of money for Wall Street today. But yeah, I did it right. But I wasn't very happy. And I went into consulting at 32 PricewaterhouseCoopers and was still a math guy uh, working on derivatives risk management. So you remember that mess in 2008 when the financial system you know, went, went belly up? Well, uh, it was my fault. Not entirely. We I can't take sole responsibility. That would be very narcissistic. But we used to work on helping banks manage the risk of derivatives investment. Uh, and uh, time and time again, we used to write recommendations, like math recommendations, like this is what you should do to run your derivatives business. And they used to more or less ignore them. They used to pay a lot for our consulting services. We were like McKinsey. Um, and so I became fascinated by change, personal change, human change, leadership, leadership role in change. And then I reinvented myself, became a psychologist, got another degree in philosophy, uh, ran a consulting firm in Europe for 10 years, uh, and then moved back to uh, to Colorado, where I live with two little boys, and I mostly write books. I mostly write books and do keynote speeches, so that's my shtick. So uh, let's maybe start with what's new about the fourth industrial revolution. And I, I don't know how much people understand I mean, sort of the differences here in these different categories we've had. Uh, there's a lot with uh, the speed of technology and, and what's happening, not only from like a microchip standpoint and an evolution of our actual technology, but then how it influences us from an evolutionary standpoint. But where is sort of your thought process on where we are there right now? Well, what's different about the fourth industrial revolution is uh, uh, the first three industrial revolutions. Electrification was the second one. Uh, fossil fuels were part of the second one. Steam and coal uh, were part of the first one, and the third one was the microchip and the personal computer. What's different about those, those were tools that basically helped us do uh, manual labor and then moving into the third industrial revolution, some, some of our thinking. We had computers a tool to help us basically think. But the fourth industrial revolution is based around machine learning, Internet of Things, uh, cloud computing, and a lot of that basically means that when you're running an organization today, you're running a mixture of machines and human beings. 
The downside of that is a lot of white-collar jobs are going to get lost. And if you remember the great globalization of the 1990s and 2000s, we didn't do a really good job as businesses or as a country uh, of taking care of the people who were left behind. I mean, part of what happened in the 2016 election was a backlash against, you know, people, you know, people in middle America saying, hey, where's mine? You know, I've been left out. I'm a manufacturing mm -hmm. guy or I'm a miner. I've been doing this for 30 years. I got to feed my family. There's a sort of sick. People say globalization and trade make the pie bigger. But that's a sick joke if you've been fired and downsized and you and your community are out of work. So, you know, making the we have, making the pie bigger isn't enough. And the fourth industrial revolution is significant because that's going to make all of that just like a hell of a worse. So McKinsey reckons that 100 million jobs could be lost or changed by 2030. Now, to put that perspective for listeners, a big recession in 2008 is 10 million jobs. That's 100 million jobs. That's a lot of dislocation. And so workplaces have to be a lot smarter about how they lead their, you know, how they attract and retain and develop talent as usual. But, you know, how do we do, how do we adapt our workplaces to this kind of uh, new machine learning, artificial intelligence revolution? So that's the, the shtick, if you want, from the fourth industrial revolution. So what really is the future of work as you see it that, you know, our listeners have probably been hearing a lot of different things about uh, AI and about where work is headed. And, you know, are we, uh, there's quite a few different uh, maybe uh, stories out there, right? And so what are you sort of seeing as what's the realistic possibility of where that uh, future of work is headed? Well, we're going to keep going where we're going. So gig working is going to increase. So that offers workplaces and, you know, people who are gig workers, a more flexible working environment. So that's definitely one thing. So workplaces that want a more flexible workforce can't, don't have to hire and recruit, retrain and develop. They can make increasing use of gig workers. Uh, and that's enabled by what's called the platform revolution. So all of the platforms, Uber's a platform, Airbnb is a platform, Salesforce is a platform, various platform technologies are making that much, much easier. And now you can have platform technologies for dog walking and for carers and all of that. So platform technology is going to be a big part of that. We're also going to be job sharing machines. So, you know, the idea that there's a sort of human stuff that you do right now, if you're in IT, if you're further down in the IT uh, function of a firm, uh, you don't have to worry too, too much about people skills. Okay, they're important. And then there's the people that deal with the human side of organizations, management and leadership. And those are now in the process of merging. So we're going to be working, even if you're in human resources now, you have to understand data science, you have to understand behavioral science, you have to understand how to work with a technology-enabled workplace. So uh, the chief executive of Microsoft says, every company is now a technology company. No matter what you do, we're all technology companies. You know, that's no longer like an optional or an add-on or a way to increase efficiency. And so that means workplaces are going to be much more technological, right? And for no matter where you work. So there's kind of so much around that. Um, you know, I almost, I remember, you know, back in the day when I had first started my company, we were, you know, you give people training on, you know, how to use Microsoft Word and how to use these different things. And now sure. we just expect them to show up and know how to do these things. Um, much like we're just going to expect people to understand the things that you're talking about inside of an organization to come with some understanding or training uh, and that we're not the ones going to be training them on on how to maybe, you sure. know, implement analytics or whatever to a company. It's going to be the anti, right? It's going to be the anti 
Like right. using, losing Word and Excel as an anti today, being able to understand data science and how to use rudimentary analytics and how to interact with inter, you know, analytics experts, that's going to be the anti. You're going to need to do that right. no matter where, where you are at work. So, But I, wa I wonder, though, to your first point about us sort of expanding, uh, at least as a country, maybe globally this is a different answer, but let's just talk, talk about from the United States perspective. You know, if we see the, the gig economy growing, and I, I've wondered, can is there a limit to its growth or can it go as far as it maybe could go without the overarching sort of government uh, uh, maybe design, right? So if you don't, if we don't have healthcare figured out, if we don't have, uh, right. you know, um, our 401ks figured out, if we don't have some of these things figured out, it's a lot harder for people to then maneuver into the gig economy without having something more stable, right? Where they can get their insurance or they can have their 401k and things like that. So what are your thoughts on, you know, what point do those two things have to maybe come together a bit more to allow for that greater maybe growth inside of that gig economy? Well, we're seeing it now, right? We're seeing it now is that, you know, if you if you work for Uber, do you really work for Uber? Well, Uber would like to say, of course you don't, right? We don't have to worry about health care, right. benefits, or 401k, or employee protections, or sick days. They don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Uh, and you have to ask yourself whether that's a, an ethical model or not. And there are people who ask that question. I'm not going to weigh on in, a, in, a, in on it here. But should you Uber workers, for example, take that as an example, have some sort of unionization, you know, a 21st century unionization, mm -hmm. uh, something like that to begin to bargain for benefits uh, with the company. So anyway, we're, we're up against that now. We're up against some of the limits of the gig economy right now. And then obviously there are advantages to have a full-time full worker, right? I mean, you know, the tacit knowledge that it takes to operate in a business, the stuff that's really not in a textbook, the judgment, the knowledge of, as they sometimes say, where the, bury, the bodies are buried. Well, you can't get that from a gig worker necessarily, right? Uh, it helps to understand the way politics work and the way the structures work and who... You know, how do you get things done? And all of that kind of stuff is not the sort of thing that someone who's parachuted into a company will necessarily be any good at. Yeah. And I guess it depends on the person, right? So there are those people that are existing in the gig economy as their full-time thing. That is what they do. And then there's an entire different cross-section of people that are coming into that gig economy saying, this is a small thing that I do to supplement sure. my other larger, more consistent thing because I want to make more money. I want to go on vacation. My family has a special income sure. need, whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think it's just sort of very complicated. Maybe we haven't done a particularly fantastic job, especially in this country, maybe figuring out how do we create the system to allow that to operate a bit better, right? And you can you can make the argument, well, get your insurance from your employer. You can make the argument, well, maybe you get your insurance from the government and get the employers out of the way, and then the economy can run. And so and this is a not intended to be an overly political conversation here, but just there seems to be this need for some design or change in order for that to maybe really take off. Yeah, 100%. I mean, healthcare is an interesting example. I've heard that General Motors spends more on uh, uh, health benefits than it does on steel. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> as their biggest single cost, uh, you know, we've outsourced that to corporations. That have, that decision was made in the 40s and 50s in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, other countries went the other way. They went to a, a more uh, well, there's very different, various different ones, but basically, sure. employers are aren't a big part of the picture. And anyway, I, we don't we don't we don't need to make this political. But I think everyone will agree that we handle globalization and the downsizing of manufacturing industry in the United States and around the world really badly, uh, as companies and as uh, as a government, as a society. Uh, you know, do we want to go through that again? 
you know, do we want to have, uh, you know, I've been to, I married a girl from Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, first, uh, from uh, Toledo, Ohio. Uh, that place is a ghost town. Uh, it's mm -hmm. coming back. It's coming back now. But if you look at malls that are shuttered, factories that are shuttered, you know, I, I worked in London most of my career. So I saw banks and marketing and lawyers and everybody was a sort of a quote unquote white collar worker. When I got married, uh, they were working at the corning plant. They worked at the refinery. They worked at the Honda manufacturing plant. They worked at, you know, this was the guts of America. Uh, these were the people that propelled America to sort of 20th century greatness. It's been it's been desecrated, you know, and so, you know, you may think, oh, well, that's the way it has to happen. That's the way capitalism has to work or something like that. But if you're a, a father or a mother trying to raise a family and um, your community, there are no just no jobs in these communities. So it's a sad thing. And I, I think we're smarter than that as a world and we're smarter than that as a country. And I think businesses need to be smarter than that, too, than leading mm -hmm. people by the side. Um, yeah. Again, we've got to grow the pie, but we also have to make sure that when we grow the pie, we grow it to some extent for everybody. Uh, right. I think, that, I think right. that's the challenge. Right. So what are some of the maybe cultural or mindset changes that you're seeing that maybe are coming or that need to come in order for this to, you know, these things to happen? Well, a lot of uh, management decisions are made, people make them with their gut, right? They base it kind of on my experience. Uh, so that world is ending, right? We're going to be using a lot of data in our decision-making. Uh, and that comes with a huge cultural change. There are very famous people, including some the president of the United States, who says, my gut's more important than experts in data, right? My gut does a better job. Uh, without commenting on whether he's right or not or something like that, that won't fly in organizations. You know, I remember we lost... Uh, uh, the, there was a trillion dollars environmental damage from the British Petroleum Deepwater Horizon uh, explosion in 2010 that I cover in one of my books. One of the decisions that caused that explosion, that cost British Petroleum $100 billion and all the environmental damage, was a guy said, uh, it's, just a, it's just a computer, it's just a model, I trust my gut. He wanted to trust his gut. The model was saying that, you know, the amount of carbon, carbon monoxide that's coming from the floor of the well was at dangerous levels. And he's just like, oh, it's just, it's just modeling. Um, you know, that's a shortcut to it. Those sorts of, I know better than the model, I know better than right. the math, you know. We sort of, we need to get past that. We need to yeah. be a more, a more science-driven and a more data-driven world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I guess, you know, we was sort of looking at this. Uh, you have spent a lot of time kind of writing about these things um, uh, in some of the books that you mentioned. Uh, where can maybe behavioral science uh, and, and the things that you've sort of focused on, maybe how does that help? How, how, does that, how does that start as an entry point for an organization to begin thinking about these things in a larger way? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, behavioral science, when I read uh, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, I don't know if you stumbled across that. Just I have. I generally suggest people go to The Undoing Project, which is a much more palatable book for people. And if they really like that one, then go to Think Fast and Slow. It's that's a little right. drier. <laughs> that's that's my boy, Mike Lewis. I worked with him in 1980s yeah. in London. He was, uh, he, was uh, he was a salesman in London uh, when I was a trader in London. So uh, okay. I'm still connected to Mike. But anyway, uh, yeah, so Thinking Fast and Slow. So what's the great insight from that? If I had to summarize it in two uh two basically two sort of transformational insights the first transformational insight is that as human beings 
we don't collect data about the world through observation. I mean, that kind of data that we come from doing that. We don't collect data and then form our beliefs. We don't do that. We'd like to believe that. Um, but what we tend to do is we filter the data we receive. We select the data received in order to reinforce our beliefs. Now, that's called... Uh, yeah, confirmation bias, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> that, and, that and a million different myriad of different varieties of things that look like the confirmation bias. So, uh, yeah, so that's one thing that's re uh, really interesting if you're trying to persuade someone in an organization. We spend as leaders a lot of time influencing people. Now, that's really interesting. If what we're doing when we're trying to influence is change people's minds, it's important to know that facts don't always change people's minds. And there's a guy... I covered in one of the books who write, I think he's a political scientist. One of the things my books do that our books don't do is I, I take from medicine and political science, political theory, information theory, media theory. Most books on leadership and change are just essentially just psychology. But anyway, this guy, Brendan Nyhan, studies something called the backfire effect. Very interesting thing. If you provide people who are committed to a point of view ideologically with data, it reinforces their view. I'll say that again. So if you try yeah. and persuade someone with facts that climate change is real or whatever they believe about welfare, a lot of these examples are from the political sphere because he's a political scientist, their beliefs harden. So that's an interesting thing for a leader in organizations to think about is how do we influence and motivate people when they're so resistant to facts? So interesting question. And the second breakthrough insight from behavioral science is that we'd like to believe that we have this family of beliefs and those guide our actions. So I believe X about the world, right? Say I believe, you know, I ought to be 25 pounds lighter, right? That's a belief. Or I ought to eat more green vegetables and fruit, right? Those are beliefs about the world. To what extent do those guide my actions? The answer is, as we know from our own lives, right? Imperfectly at best, yeah. right? Right. So, so beliefs, we'd like our beliefs, our cognitive great, huge frontal cortexes to be deciding what we do in the world. In practice, that's not the way it works. In fact, beliefs often adapt themselves to your behavior. What I mean by that is that if you're, for example, if you're a smoker, you're more likely to disbelieve research on smoking. For example, if you're, you know, you drive a Ford F-150, you're less likely to believe data on climate change. So these are the kinds of things that we need to worry about is that when you want to influence someone's changing behavior is what you need to do in change management and leadership in organizations. If you want a two-step model, first I have to influence the guy. And then once I change what's inside their heads, I have to hope that that translates into action. That model of change, that influence first, influence, persuasion, training and development, all that stuff is imperfect. So Enter behavioral science, enter thinking fast and slow, enter mm -hmm. the, un the undoing project, enter predictably ir irrational. What are some strategies you can use in change to short circuit this thing up here, the frontal cortex, and actually get people doing the right thing because behaviors matter more than what's inside people's heads, yeah. right? And How often you, it's just getting them to recognize it, to even to realize that it's going on. Uh, because to yeah. your point, they think, right, that they are. Uh, there's another book recently I read called Atomic Habits where, you know, he says, yeah. 
you know, if you're trying to lose weight, you know, ask yourself before you go order a meal, what, what would a healthy person order, right? We think we're healthy. We, we yeah. view ourselves as healthy people, and yet we're ordering a, a burger with fries and, you know, a milkshake. And that's not what a healthy person would order. <laughs> that's right. And, and that's part of the behavioral science toolkit that's in mm-hmm. one of my books called Impact. That's called Ego and Identity is you start you use someone's identity or ego, and the identity is I'm a healthy person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're using that to drive behavioral change. It's interesting. It's an interesting, yeah. interesting idea. So in Google, for example, let's make this real. This is a business podcast, and this is a business example. People didn't used to show up for training courses, right? They'd book them. They were filled so people couldn't get in. And then on the day, they decided not to go. So that means there's empty seats, and people aren't there who want to be there. So one of the things they did is they appealed to the Google identity, Google Googlers, as they call themselves, uh, are proud of their googly behaviors. And they said, this just isn't a very googly thing to do. Ditching a training course and leaving empty seats costs us money, costs people a place, costs you learning. Don't do that. Not very googly. So you can use identity to drive behavioral change. People people like us do things like this. Yeah, absolutely. Correct mundo. Exactly. I'm the sort of guy who does that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're we're just right here at the edge here where we need to Wrap this up. I want to make sure I ask you very quickly, uh, what are you reading right now? Oh, uh, God, I'm reading History of London. I'm reading um, uh, I'm reading a book by Andrew McAfee, who's written a book called the Dematerialize- on the Dematerialization. He's a thinker from MIT. Um, I'm interviewing him on my podcast, which is called Think Bigger, Think Better. Um, I'm interviewing him in a couple of weeks, so I'm reading his book. Uh, I am reading Game of Thrones, Volume 1. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, some good options there. We'd love to ask that question because our listeners love to get ideas and suggestions from people they admire uh, about what they should be reading or thinking about. So final question, how can people find out more about you, your company, your books? What's the best way for them to figure that out? Yeah, just check me out at paulgibbons.net or check out some of my presentations on SlideShare. I just put up a big presentation on behavioral science and the fourth industrial revolution on SlideShare. You know, take a look at it, scan through it, see if there's anything catches your eye. Uh, but paulgibbons.net is kind of the resource for all things Paul Gibbons. The book's called Impact, 21st Century Change Management, Digital Transformation in the Future of Work. It's got a lot of behavioral science in it. Uh, first book, Science of Organizational Change. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, one-stop shop, paulgibbons.net or at Paul G. Gibbons on Twitter. Fantastic. And, Paul, thank you for calling in from Colorado today, not Ireland, <laughs> uh, despite our our best attempts to relocate you. Um, but it was good that you were, hell, it's time in London. So we were we were just a little late. I mean, we were well, close. We were close, just a bit late. So. Oh, well, it was yeah. really interesting. And I hope you found it valuable. I hope your listeners found it valuable. I guess we're very close to the end here. I'm yeah. seeing your guy going... Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. We'd love to have you come back and keep the conversation going. There was so much more to talk about that we didn't get to. Uh, but I uh, hope people will check you out and your podcast and your books and everything else. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. My, next week, my guests will include Todd Frazier, content creator for, and uh, business strategist and speaker, and uh, Derek Waters, regional vice president of operations for UPS. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 